Section 47 of The Toilers of the Sea by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenland. Chapter 7 The Unexpected Intervenes. Clubin, haggard, gazed at it. It certainly was the terrible isolated reef. Impossible to mistake that misshapen outline. The two twin Douvres reared themselves aloft hideously allowing a view of their defile like a trap between them one would have pronounced it the cutthroat of the ocean they were quite close at hand the fog had concealed them like an accomplice clubin had lost his way in the fog in spite of all his attention that had happened to him which happened to two other great navigators to gonzales who discovered cape blanco and to fernandez who discovered Cape Verde. The fog had led him astray. It had appeared to him excellent for the execution of his project, but it had its perils. Clubin had veered to the west, and had erred. The Guernsey passenger, by thinking that he recognized the Hanways, had decided the final turn of the helm. Clubin had believed that he was casting himself on the Hanways. The Durande, broken open by one of the rocks of the reef, was separated from the two Douvres only by a few cable-lengths. Two hundred fathoms further on was a massive cube of granite. On the steep faces of this rock several furrows and projections for climbing were visible. The rectilinear corners of these rough walls, with their right angles, suggested the presence of a plateau at the top. It was the man. The rock of the man rose still higher than the Douvres rocks, its platform dominated their double and inaccessible point. This platform, while crumbling on the edges, had an entablature and an indescribable sculpturalesque regularity. Nothing more desolate and deadly could be imagined. The waves from the open sea lapped tranquilly against the square faces of this enormous black mass, a sort of pedestal for the immense specters of the sea and of the night. This aggregate of things was quiet, hardly a breath in the air, hardly a ripple on the waves. One divined beneath that mute surface of water the vast hidden life of the depths. Clubin had often seen the Douvres Reef from a distance. He satisfied himself that, in very truth, he was there. He could not doubt it. An abrupt and hideous change. The Douvres instead of the Hanways. Instead of one mile, five leagues of sea, five leagues of sea, the impossible. The Douvres rock for the solitary shipwrecked man is the presence, visible and palpable, of the last moment, a prohibition of all hope of reaching land. Clubin shuddered. He had placed himself in the jaws of the shadow. No other refuge than the man rock. It was probable that the tempest would come up during the night, and that the longboat of the Durande would founder, as it was overloaded. No news of the shipwrecked man would reach the land. No one would even know that Clubin had been left on the Douvres Reef. No other prospect than death from cold and hunger. His seventy-five thousand francs would not procure him a mouthful of bread. All that he had built up had ended in this trap. He was the laborious architect of his own catastrophe. No resource, no safety possible. Triumph had turned into a precipice. Instead of deliverance, a prison. 
instead of a long and prosperous future, the death agony. In the twinkling of an eye, quick as a flash of lightning, his whole structure had crumbled. The paradise dreamed of by this demon had resumed its true form, the sepulchre. In the meantime, the wind had risen, the fog, shaken, riddled with holes, rent, was disappearing towards the horizon in huge, shapeless masses. The whole sea reappeared. The cattle, more and more invaded by the water, continued to bellow in the hold. Night was approaching, probably the tempest. The Durand gradually set afloat again by the rising tide, swung from right to left, then from left to right, and began to turn upon the reef as upon a pivot. The moment could be foreseen when a billow would tear her off and roll her to rack and ruin. There was less obscurity than at the moment of the shipwreck. Although the day was more advanced, one could see more clearly. The fog in departing had carried away a portion of the darkness. The west was clear of all clouds. The twilight has a great white sky. This vast reflection lighted the sea. The Durand had run aground on an inclined plane from the stern to the bow. Clubin mounted on the rear of the vessel, which was almost out of the water. He fixed his eye intently on the horizon. The peculiarity of hypocrisy is to be strong in hope. The hypocrite is the man who waits. Hypocrisy is nothing else than a horrible hopefulness, and the foundation of that lie is made of that virtue transformed into a vice. Strange to say, there is confidence in hypocrisy. The hypocrite trusts himself to some indefinable power in the unknown, which permits evil. Clubin gazed at the expanse. The situation was desperate. This sinister soul did not despair. He said to himself that, after this long fog, the vessels which had remained heaved to or at anchor would resume their course, and that perhaps one would pass on the horizon and, in fact, a sail did make its appearance. It was coming from the east and going to the west. As it approached, the details of the vessel became outlined. It had but one mast and was sloop-rigged. The bowsprit was almost horizontal. It was a coaster. In less than half an hour it would pass quite close to the Duver Rock. Clubin said to himself, I am saved. At a moment like the one in which he found himself, one thinks first of life alone. This coaster was, perhaps, a stranger. Who knows whether it was not one of the smuggling vessels on its way to Plémont? Who knows whether it was not Blasquito himself? In that case, not only was life safe, but fortune too. And the encounter of the Duvre Reef, by hastening the conclusion, by suppressing the waiting in the haunted house, by winding up the adventure on the open sea, would have been a happy incident. All the certainty of success frantically re-entered this somber mind. It is strange with what facility scoundrels believe that success is due to them. There was but one thing to be done. The Durand, entangled in the rocks, mingled her outline with theirs, was confounded with their indentations among which she formed only one more feature, and would not suffice, in the little daylight remaining, to attract the attention of the vessel now about to pass. But a human figure, standing out blackly against the whiteness of twilight, erect on the man-rock, 
and making signals of distress, would be perceived without a doubt. They would send a boat to rescue the shipwrecked man. The man-rock was only two hundred fathoms away. It was a simple matter to swim to it, to climb it was easy. There was not a minute to be lost. As the bow of the Durand rested on the rock, it was higher than the stern, and the point where Clubin stood was where it was necessary to plunge for the swim. He began making a sounding, and he found that under the stern there was a great depth of water. The microscopic shells of the foraminifera and the polycystines, which the tallow on the sounding lead brought up, were unbroken, which indicated that there existed very hollow rock caverns where the water was always tranquil, however great the surface agitation. He undressed, leaving his garments on the bridge. He would find clothes on the coaster. He retained only the leather girdle. When he was naked he raised his hand to his belt, rebuckled it, felt of the iron box within it, rapidly studied with his glance the direction which he must follow among the breakers and the waves in order to reach the man-rock, then, throwing himself head foremost, he made his plunge. As he dived from a height, he plunged deep. He sank very far into the water, touched the bottom, skirted the submarine rocks for a moment, then struck out for the surface again. At that moment he felt himself seized by the foot. End of chapter 7 The Unexpected Intervenes